Hey, I'm going to invite Peter DeTori to come forward. Some of you know Peter. He, uh, he, he and his wife Tyra and their kids, they attend this campus, and, um, and he's going to help me with the message today. We're in week two of our Anxious for Nothing series. If you missed last week, you can still find it online, but a lot of this in part was inspired. Well, it was the Holy Spirit's inspiration, but Peter, you, you had a little part in this as well, because a few months ago, Peter came to, to Pastor John and to me and, and just said, hey, I feel... He, he's experienced some anxiety recently. You're going to hear the story. That's why he's here. And he said, I, but I feel like it wasn't just for me. He said, I feel like the, what you've been going through in the last 15 months is really for other people as well. I appreciate that about, Peter, your story and your heart is that you, you were like, how can, how can God use this for other people? And, and he, Peter has such a heart for people out, out there who might be feeling anxiety, but you haven't shared it yet. Um, or maybe you might for you guys, you might be feeling anxiety and you don't even know it yet. You don't even know that's what it is because that's what happened to the two of us. And so we've been talking for the last couple of months and, uh, and it, one thing led to, to the next and we ended up doing a series on anxiety. And so Peter, this is what happens when you open your mouth and you come to me. Is not, you know, a couple months later, he's up here having to preach this with me. Uh, so talk about anxiety, but you did great in the practice service, the, the first service. And so um, we didn't tell them that it was practice, but it was. Uh, so I want to, let's start with this. Peter, welcome. Just real quick, tell us, tell us your story um, of how you first encountered anxiety. Yeah, so anxiety gripped my life about 15 months ago. Uh, we had just got back from vacation. Uh, we golfed for three days. We ate great food. We had a wonderful time. I was stressed at work. So this vacation was at the perfect time. And Got back on a Saturday night, went to church on Sunday, went home, started mowing the lawn. And uh, halfway through mowing the lawn, I just felt like this pressure in my chest, in my back. I felt like I'd been hit by a truck. I uh, didn't know what was going on, so I did what any normal male would do at that point. I finished mowing the lawn. <laughs> and so my wife came home and I said, hey, something's up. And she's like, yeah, we were on a plane yesterday. Like, of course something's up, like that happens. So we just dealt with it that day. Um, Monday morning I woke up and I still felt that pain in my chest. And uh, I was getting coffee over at East Side. The owner there, John, I, I still to this day can remember the conversation we were having. He was telling me a story, but I was not there. Like I was like, I need to go to the hospital. And so I didn't even take a sip of that coffee. I got in my car and I drove to Logan Regional. So they immediately start treating me like I'm having a heart attack, uh, right? Because I have chest pain, and I'm 48, and I'm stressed. And so they start treating me like I'm having a heart attack, and all of a sudden this woman comes in and she puts oxygen on me. And she says, the doc wants oxygen on you. And I'm like, how come? And she's like, I can't tell you. Because apparently you have to go to medical school to be able to answer the questions that the patients ask. So she's putting oxygen on me, and I don't know why. So eventually the doctor comes in and he says, you're not having a heart attack. And I'm like, all right, this is great. He says, but your right lung's collapsed. So that doesn't make any sense to me because I haven't been in a car accident. I go to the gym four times a week. I eat healthy. Like nothing traumatic's happened to me. How does a lung just collapse? And the guy who went to medical school says, it just does. <laughs> 
So in kicks the anxiety at this point. Like he's literally just told me he doesn't know why my lung collapsed, but now we're gonna have to deal with it. So they kept me overnight, and the, the remedy for a collapsed lung that just collapses in case you're ever in this situation is it'll inflate itself and everything will be fine. So, again, something else that doesn't make sense, right? So they kept me overnight, and the next morning, the doctor, the surgeon's having a conversation with the nurse outside the door, and I can hear the whole thing. And he's basically telling her, I'm going to have to go in and do the procedure I don't want to do. And then he walks in, and he's got a smile on his face, and he's like, well, your lung didn't get better overnight, so we're going to have to do a procedure. So he basically went in between two of my ribs, with um, like a garden hose <laughs> while I was awake, and he, he put that in my body. It stayed 24 hours, apparently it released the pressure and my lung inflated. And so then they sent me home, so that's awesome. But immediately when we walked in the door, I looked at my beautiful wife and said, you have to take me back to the hospital. And she's like, they just released us. And I said, yeah, but I don't know what my blood pressure is, and I don't know if I have oxygen in my in my blood right now. And I don't know what my heart rate is. And nobody's coming in to check on me every two hours, so I have to go back to the hospital. Like, I can't do this. Like, this is not gonna be okay. And that really just set me into a spot where I was gonna have to deal with something pretty big. Fast forward a week, we go in for my follow-up visit, and the surgeon's like, everything's great. You look great. Everything's fine. And I'm like, this has been a horrible week. Like, this doesn't make any sense. So again, my wife says to the surgeon, like, he's kind of a mess. Do you think he could take a picture of his lung, show it to him, and he might feel better? So they're like, yeah, we'll do that. So they do that, and Tyra and I got in the car, and we drove to Preston. Sometimes we like to go on car rides, it's just relaxing. And we were just going to have lunch after this horrific week, and we decided to go into Immigration Canyon, which didn't make a lot of sense because we were out of self-service. But we went up there, Went for a little walk. I didn't feel great, but again, Tyra was like, the doctor said they went through all those nerves, you're not gonna feel okay. Um, we come back through Preston, and I have seven missed calls on my phone. And normal people would go back to the first voicemail and then listen to it, and then actually get the story and figure out what's going on. I listened to the last one. And so this poor woman called me and she said, my name's Peggy, I'm in the cardiac unit down at the Katy. We need you down here as soon as possible. And I'm like, let me play that again, put it on speaker. Tyra's like, well, I guess we're heading down there. So I call them on the way, and I'm like trying to figure out what's going on, and they're like telling me I need to get down there and see a thoracic surgeon. I didn't even know there was such a thing as a thoracic surgeon. So we're driving, she basically is on the phone with us, and she says, your lungs collapsed again. We were just at our follow-up appointment. Like, how could this happen? So my anxiety at this point is through the roof. And um, 48 hours later, I was in McKay in the heart unit with like old people who have like heart issues. Older than 48? Older than 48. Yeah, and so I had major surgery on my right lung. Um, they had to go in and repair something that was actually wrong with it. And then they had to do a procedure where they attached my right lung to the inside of my chest cavity. So this lung doesn't float like this lung does. And, uh, and so then they say, you're good to go and send me home. And guess what? Tyra, we 
need to go back to the hospital because I don't know if there's oxygen in my blood. I don't know what my blood pressure is. I don't know who's going to check on me, who's going to come in the middle of the night. And so this really set forth a 10-month battle with everything in my life. The people closest to me, they knew a little bit of what was going on. But when I would show up at work, I would have to be who I was. I was, I was running, I was in charge of a construction company, building new construction homes, solving problems. And at that, at that same time, my world is falling apart. Like, I can't even function. Day after day, I'm having to call my wife in the middle of the day and say, babe, you just gotta talk me through the next 15 minutes because I have to go into a really important meeting with the client and I don't think I can do it. And so, my life completely changed on that day when my lung collapsed and really a battle with anxiety ensued. And I didn't know it was real. Um, I don't know if I ever really thought of anxiety as real, but it, it became real to me fast. Yeah, today, the title of today's message is Why Control Freaks Get So Anxious. So no offense, but that's why you're here. Because one of the things that you learned, and I have a similar story, is, and your, your story about the lung is perfect, is you realized you had no control over this thing that's automatic. Like breathing is just automatic. You, when's the last time you thought about breathing? It's just automatic. So number one, you realized you didn't have control over it, but then you were shocked to find out the doctor didn't even have control over it. Or, or and even a full understanding, that eh, just sometimes happens. Yeah, that kind of thing happens. I remember when I had... My, my health scare, and I had, a, I had a tumor on my, it was actually close to my lung, it was in, in between my ribs. I also had a chest tube like you did, so that was fun. And, um, and I, I remember talking to the doctor, I'm like, why, what, why, why, why do I have a tumor? He's like, if we could answer that question, we would be very rich people. He said, the better question is, why don't we all have tumors all the time? It's like, we, tumors just an abnormality. Like, why are we not, why isn't it? Why isn't it just so much more rampant? And it really was, that was my first eye-opening experience like yours where I said, I'm not in control. And I think, I think this is why men, we've met so many men, even in the last service, I'm sure in this service, we hope you'll come up and talk with Peter, but so many guys are like, I had the same exact, I have the same exact story. And I think for men it happens more where like we talked about last week, that anxiety cycle where you have anxiety but you don't really even know what it is and you, you stuff it and you just push it and you just work through it, you just deal with it, you just keep mowing the lawn, you keep whatever, you keep going to work. And that's what, when I had my experiences, my wife Tracy, she said, I think you've always had anxiety, it's just finally hit a breaking point for you and I think that's probably what happened with you. It hit a breaking point for you and part of that breaking point we're gonna learn today is realizing you're not invincible. It's realizing you're not in control, realizing you're not on the throne of your life. And that's a sobering thing for a guy. Now, some of you women are in here saying like, duh, like we knew that. I don't, there's some, I notice it in my son, the difference between my son and my daughter. My son is just kind of a typical guy, just fearless and invincible. And my daughter has always been more cautious. And my daughter struggles with anxiety, kind of that low hum anxiety because she's dealing with it already. My son will deal with it when he's 48, I'm sure, right? Because he'll stuff it. And again, some of you guys are, are in here just, some of you know exactly what we're talking about. Some of you are like, who are these wimps? Like, I can't believe it, you know? Just wait, God will get you too. 
That's what we learned. All right, so here's the passage we're gonna be looking at today. It's from Philippians chapter four. Philippians four is the anxiety chapter in the Bible. You know, the love chapter is 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, etc. But Philippians four, we're gonna be in it throughout this whole series for five weeks. Last week we looked at the secret to overcoming anxiety, verses six and seven. Your assignment was to memorize that. I hope you did. It's a great one to have committed to memory. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication, present your request before God, and then the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So this passage we looked at last week shows us that the, the, the secret is, is to not let worry dominate your life and to instead replace it with prayer and, and all the stuff we talked about last week. Well, today, we're going to back up a couple verses. We're going to go to verses four and five, and we're going to relate this to the control freak idea. So Paul says this, he says, always be full of joy in the Lord, I'll say it again, rejoice. We'll come back to that at the very end. He says, let everyone see that you're considerate in all you do. And then he says this thing that causes great anxiety in us, and I think when we read this, it even triggers us a little bit still when you think about your mortality. He said, remember the Lord is coming soon. Now for us, when you hear that news, like uh, I'm gonna have to do a procedure I didn't wanna have to do, you're thinking about dying, right? You're afraid to die, but yet when Paul says this, he's actually trying to encourage them. And the difference is in 2,000 years ago, the Christians 2,000 years ago didn't have this expectation that they were going to live till they were 90 or 100 years old. They They didn't have this temptation like what we have to make this world our home. They were undergoing persecution. That's why Paul writes the letter to them is because they were, they were enduring persecution. And so by the end of this chapter, what he's saying to them is, hey, it's all gonna be over soon. Jesus is coming back. Someday you're gonna die and go to heaven. And for Christians 2,000 years ago, that was like, oh, thank God. The struggles of this world are gonna be over. But today, and this is, I think, where a lot of anxiety comes from, is we're trying to live our best life now. Today, we have this illusion of control that we feel like, you know, we, I can walk into my living room, literally, I would impress you, but I could walk into my living room and say, let there be light, and the lights would turn on. <laughs> now, unless you're 80, you know what I'm doing, you know what the trick is, right? The, the trick, in fact, I have a friend who's 80 who've, who've discovered this, and he thinks it's the coolest thing. Like, he keeps showing it to me. I'm like, you showed that to me last week, you know? Like, watch this. Alexa, turn on the lights, and all the lights turn on. I said, not so cool. Like that, that's how God felt in Genesis 1. And he says, let there be light. And there was light. I mean, so it's almost like we get this impression that we're in control. We get this impression that the whole world is just at our fingertips, and we, we have it right here. And so what is, what is, I think, supposed to have simplified our lives, I think has complicated our lives, and now we have this illusion of control, and that's part of the problem, because you're going to, at some point, wake up and realize you're not in control. And isn't that part of what happened for you, is you didn't, you didn't, this wasn't encouraging to hear, the Lord is coming soon. You're like, whoa, I'm not ready. Hold your horses, God. I got 20, 30, 40 more years here, right, on earth. That's not how the early Christians thought. Yeah, the, the not being in control was... Oh man, that was devastating for me because I'm in control of everything. I'm in control of meetings. I'm in control of, you know, how how fast the house gets built. I'm in I'm in control of finances. I'm in control of the family. Like I'm used to being in control. And when my lung collapsed, I was no longer in control. And and for for weeks after that happened, I would say to my wife, I just want to feel myself again. I just want to feel who I was before this happened again. 
don't want to battle this scared feeling that I have every day when I walk into meetings or, or when, I, when I see people. It would be crazy. We would have friends come to our house, and I would try a little bit to open up to them and be like, hey, I'm really struggling with this whole thing after my lung collapse. And they'd be like, yeah, give it a week. You'll be fine. Because that's who they saw me as. Hmm. But that's not who I was. And so my, my wife had to tell me one day, stop. She just said, stop. You can't keep asking God to be normal again. You can't ask to go back to where you were. Where were you? You were working ridiculous hours. Your priorities were all out of whack. Like, you were running yourself ragged. Why do you want to go back to that place? Like, you have to look at what happened and find some good in it. And really, I had a surrender. I had a surrender, and, and, and my wife was a huge part of that. She just said enough. And when I finally did surrender, um, it's not overnight. Like, it's not like this, oh, I'm great, I'm fine, everything's great. When I finally surrendered, I was finally in a place that I could start doing the work. The work that was going to come from where I was at with the anxiety that I was feeling. And um, that truly was the hardest part, was letting go of the control. I think Paul learned the same thing. The first thing we're going we're gonna to just real quickly kind of walk through these things. I think Paul learned that anxiety is a wake-up call. I actually believe Paul experienced this too, the apostle, the guy who wrote Philippians 4. Because he talks in another passage about a thorn in the flesh that reminded him of his dependence on God. And that's what anxiety has been for us. It's kind of been this, kind of this surprising warning sign, almost like a gift for us. Here's how Paul said it in 2 Corinthians 12. He said, so to keep me from being proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh. Now, we don't exactly know what the thorn in the flesh is. Some people say maybe it was his eyesight that was failing, or it was his, some other physical condition. Maybe he had a collapsed lung. I don't know. But what I do know is what he's describing here, I can relate to. This is anxiety. Whatever the thorn in the flesh was, it created anxiety. Because here's what he says. Three times I begged the Lord to take it away. I mean, weren't you begging the Lord to take it away? I was. Like never before I was begging God to take this panic, panic feeling away. He says three times I begged him. And each time he said this, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weaknesses. And so then he, he says this. So now, it, now, it took him a while to come to this. But he says, so now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses, Paul says. And in the insults and the hardships and the persecution, the troubles, the anxiety, my, my addition, that I suffer for Christ. And, and then he makes this kind of concluding statement. I love this statement. He says, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. So Paul, what Paul did is he learned this, the V word, vulnerability. He learned vulnerability through this thorn in, in, in the flesh. And for you, Peter, that was a hard, for a guy, for kind of a self-made man, you're, you know, you're, you're killing it at work, you're doing great in life, you've got a wonderful family, and then all of a sudden, you had to be vulnerable. It was like thrust upon you. Yeah, immediately. Um, when, you, when you think about giving up control and really wrestling with that battle, Vulnerability is really that next step. And really what vulnerability allowed me to do was connect. Um, it just started to open a door. Um, I think Brene Brown describes it as a sliding glass moment where she says, in the moment of vulnerability, you open a sliding glass door and 
the person you're being vulnerable with has an opportunity just to walk through it. And, and so really that became my mantra, um, actually being pushed to be vulnerable. First, of course, starting with my wife, um, which was crazy because she knew already what was going on, but she gave me the space to be vulnerable. Like she just didn't beat me over the head with why are you feeling that way or you need to do this or here's what you need to do. She just allowed me to be vulnerable and bring it to her. So that was really the first place. But then it allowed me to be vulnerable with people that I would meet in the community. Um, meeting someone for a cup of coffee that was just supposed to be a cup of coffee and then sharing some vulnerability part of my story that allowed you know, a gentleman to share with me about his son who tried to take his own life. Um, and the connection between him and I that came from that and how his son was really struggling in the same spot with some of these same anxiety feelings that I was feeling. And so vulnerability became this thing that on a regular basis, I would come home from work and I, I would say, Tyra, guess what? Like I opened up to someone at work and guess where they're at right now? You're not gonna believe this. And her and I would be able to pray for them. Mm. We'd be able to reach out to them. We'd be able to to offer them some comfort with what they were going through. And so here's this horrible thing that I've been going through and I'm still going through, and yet vulnerability has been such a powerful piece in not only my life, but the lives of others. Yeah, the thing, the thing that we learned and that we're gonna see the prophet Isaiah learned is that through all the unexpected ups and downs, he didn't expect the lung thing to happen, that God is still on the throne of our lives. That's what we learn. So there's this place in Isaiah chapter six. I've always read this passage before, Isaiah six, one, but I've never really fully understood the significance of it. But it says there, he writes, it was the, in the year that King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. So he had, Isaiah has this vision of God on the year that King Uzziah died. Well, King Uzziah was on the throne for 52 years. And so for 52 years, most of Isaiah's life, he had known stability and prosperity and protection and peace because there was a stable king on the throne. There was, there was a stable leader in his life. And then Uzziah dies. And you can imagine that Isaiah's feeling anxiety and the people are feeling anxiety. And that's right when God reveals himself to the prophet Isaiah. Right when Isaiah needed it. When, when this illusion of control disappeared because because Uzziah's not on the throne anymore, it, was, it wasn't until then that God revealed himself to Isaiah, and it, it says he was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And I love how Max Lucado, author, the author of a book, it's a great book if you want a book on this topic called Anxious for Nothing, and Max Lucado says it like this. Here's how he explains it. He says, Uzziah's throne was empty, but God's was occupied. Uzziah's 52-year reign had ended, but God's had not. Uzziah's voice was silent, but God's was strong. God was and is alive on the throne and worthy of endless worship. God calmed the fears of Isaiah, not by removing the problem. It's not like God said, oh, sorry, Isaiah, you weren't ready for that. Let me raise Uzziah from the dead, which he could have done. That's not what he did. He solved the problem by revealing his divine power and presence, just like the thorn in Paul's flesh. God chose not to take the thorn out of the flesh. God chose not to get rid of our 
panic anxiety like a pill, like just say one prayer and it'll go away, because what God was trying to do is he was trying to teach us this lesson that he's on the throne, he always was. You thought you were on the throne of your life, you never were. You thought you were more in control than you, than, than you really ever, you're not in control at all. Like your life is but a breath, and you could go like that. And, and the good news is, is God's on the throne and God is good. See, now if God was bad, if God was evil, and God's on the throne, that's scary. But God is good and God's on the throne, and it's a good thing he's there and not you, because you'd screw it up, right? And that's part of, I think, what we were learning, and it's part of what, what Isaiah learned here when he had this revelation about God being on the throne. And so then the last thing, I wanna go, come back to that verse again, is that the practical response to this if you feel like a control freak, I think Paul was a control freak too, by the way, is to do what Paul's saying in this verse, it's to rejoice in the Lord. So let's go back to that, to that verse once again. Uh, Philippians four and verse five and six, or four and five, it says, always be full of joy in the Lord. And he says, I'll say it again, rejoice. Now go back and read all of Philippians four and you'll see the theme for the book of Philippians is to rejoice. The theme is joy. He says, you should have joy, you should have joy, you should have joy, which is really surprising when you realize that Paul's writing the letter from prison. And he's actually not far from his death. He's writing this letter from prison. He's writing to these Christians in Philippi who, who are experiencing persecution and therefore anxiety. So they're anxious for him, they're anxious for themselves. And Paul's response to that is, just be full of joy in the Lord. I want you to rejoice in the Lord. The only way you can do that is if you realize that the Lord's on the throne. The only way you can rejoice in the Lord is if you kind of zoom out of the picture instead of being so fixated on your situation and say, wait a second, whatever happens in this situation, even if it ends in my death, which is what Paul said, to zoom out and say, God is in control. God's on the throne, he always was. And, and that's worth rejoicing about. And so for you, I know that your wife gave you a, a, really, a really good practical thing to do on this particular point. She did. Um, hopefully you're seeing the common theme of my wife being pretty awesome throughout this whole thing. Like she, she really gave me a lot of these tools. Like she went and researched them and found them and, and it really made a huge difference. But she helped me with my attitude. Um, instead of feeling like, woe is me. Like why is this happening? Like why did I have to go through this, this horrific experience and then have to suffer this debilitating anxiety? Why me, why me? She, she started the why not do mantra. She started the why not start to give praise and glory to God for the things that you do have? And so she came up with something called the five things, which was a super practical thing that she would do. And she would give me an index card, and on one side of the index card, it would, it would actually, I have one here, I'll show you. So you saw prehistoric, this is, there's no iPhone involved, <laughs> computers. Like, this is actually one from a year ago. And um, she would put these in my lunch and it would just be blank. And then I would get a text from her that would say, hey, you gotta take five minutes and do the five things today. And so on one side, I would write five things that I'm thankful or grateful to God for. And uh, you know, on this day, I was, I was grateful for my relationship with God, and I was grateful for Tyra's unfailing love to me. Mm -hmm. 
And I was grateful for my work, even though it was really hard. Um, I was grateful for my kids, and I was grateful for my mistakes, because I can learn and grow from them. <laughs> and then on the other side, she asked me to write down five things I'm proud of myself for. This became a daily thing. This became a practical tool that started to pull me from the depths of anxiety, the depths of a place where I was going into depression, I was going into not wanting to be around people. Um, I'm a social person, I really like being around people. And we would stop having dinners with people, we would just, I would just feel anxious and it was not heading in the right direction. And so through gratitude, through redirecting my prayers, not on me, but giving God glory for what he's already done in my life, giving God glory for what he's gonna do in my life, um, and then really the last thing that helped was I started journaling. And my journals ended up being love letters to God. When I look back on them now, they were just me sharing with God something I was really appreciative of. Um, just sharing, just gratitude. And it's just amazing how that power um, can really transform a life because I could not be up here a year ago. Mm -hmm. Like when I think about where I was in November a year ago, there were Sundays in this church where I sat right over here and just wondered if I'd even make it through the service. Um, you know, <laughs> wondered if Robert would come up and talk to me after service and I'd get super uncomfortable talking to him. Like, it's not you, know. Robert, it's not you. It's not you. Yeah. <laughs> and so this, this thing that had gripped my life um, started to get better. And it started to get better because I started to center my focus, my prayers, the gratitude on the place that it needed to be. And uh, I guess the encouragement that I want to leave everyone with is it doesn't happen overnight. Um, just a week ago, we had friends over and, and I suffered some anxiety. Like I started feeling it come on. And they were at our house and we were watching Notre Dame play football and we were eating great food. And I could feel that nervous energy. I could feel that something's not right. I could feel I need to get out of this room. And I did. And when I walked upstairs, I can remember just saying a quick prayer of like, God, you're in control. And we have some great friends here today. And thank you for getting to spend some time with them. And I could just feel like this just kind of come over me. So I don't want you to walk out of here with the unrealistic expectation that anxiety is something that you just deal with and it goes away. Maybe that'll happen for some of you. But the guys we've been talking to, mm -hmm. it's a battle. It's something you have to fix your eyes on every day. Um, you have to talk about it. You have to get together with other guys. I, I, you know, there's a, there's a chance we might start a, a men's group here to, to talk about anxiety. Um, and we'll give you some details on that if we get it going. But this is such a big thing that's so personal to me because of the grip that it, it, it put on my life that I, I want to I invite everybody that is, is going through something like this to, to reach out to somebody and just start those vulnerability conversations, give control to God, and, and just let the work happen in your life and, and just know it's not going to be overnight. I want to pray for you right now because I know some of you, uh, some of you, this was timely, and we hope you'll come and talk with us afterwards. Peter and Tyra will be up here. Others will be up here as well. We want to, we, like he said, we want to help you. If, you. if you relate to this at all, we want to help you. 
and, uh, and, and Jesus is the solution to all of it. But I want to pray for it right now. Would you pray with me? God, I pray right now for people in this room who, who just can relate to what Peter's talking about. God, they've, they've experienced anxiety maybe for a long time or maybe, maybe more recently like we have. And God, I pray that you would show us, that you would teach us dependence on you through this. God, that we would, we would learn to get the focus <coughs> off of ourselves and, and our desire to control every outcome and, and to put the focus on you and to learn to trust in you like Paul did when he experienced the thorn in his flesh. And God, I pray for young people today. I know there are so many young people who struggle with this. Lord, I pray that you would teach our young people dependence on you through this. I pray for the rest of us, God, maybe some of the men in here, some of the dads who have never been vulnerable in this area, God, that you would give us victory. And all of it is for you. All of it is because of you. And so today, Lord God, we just say thank you. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the one that gives us the solution. Thank you, Jesus, that you're in control, that you always were. And I pray that you would teach us more and more dependence on you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it's fitting that it's the first Sunday of the month, and that means that we're taking communion. So if you grabbed one of these little communion things on the way in, pull it out. If you missed one, slip up your hand, and we'll get one to you up in the balcony. There, I think they're in the back there if you need one of these. If you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to do this with us, to take communion with us. And I want to invite you first, if you've never done this before, it's a little tricky, so I'm going to give you some instructions. If you peel back that thin top layer, you can get to the wafer first and grab that wafer. It says in Scripture, on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took some bread and he gave thanks to God the Father for it, and then he broke the bread into pieces. We've already done that for you. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So when we take this bread together, Jesus told us to think about him on the cross, hanging on the cross. He became flesh for us so that he could go to the cross in our plate, in our place. And so when we take this, we remember the, the body of Christ. Let's take this together. Jesus, thank you for doing the unthinkable for us, God, the perfect, sinless Lamb of God took our place. We're the ones who should have died, but you took the punishment instead. We praise you for that today. Then it says in, in the same way, Jesus took the cup after wine, or the cup of wine after supper, and he said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. So let's peel back that, that second section that gets you to the juice. And this represents the blood of Christ for us. It represents Jesus pouring out his blood on the cross on our behalf. Let's take that together. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your body and your blood. And today we worship you and we praise you and we give you all of the glory and the honor. Thank you for delivering us from our sins. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.